Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Stephanie Ann Frampton for a conversation about libraries in ancient Rome. Dr. Frampton is a classicist, comparatist, and historian of media in antiquity. She is Associate Professor of Classical Literature, Co-Chair of the Program in Ancient and Medieval Studies, and Faculty Director of the MIT Programs in Digital Humanities at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, based in the U.S. She is author of the monograph, Empire of Letters, Writing in Roman Literature and Thought from Lucretius to Ovid, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Frampton joins the show today from Cambridge, Massachusetts in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's nice to connect with you today, Stephanie, and to speak about this topic. So to get to the crux of the conversation uh, right off the bat, can you share what a library was in ancient Rome? And then we'll obviously work our way into the details from there. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question to start with the definition um, because I think some of the things uh, that we bring, uh, uh, our assumptions about modern libraries, bringing them back to the ancient world are absolutely applicable. So just as they are today, libraries in antiquity were incredibly important institutions for the dissemination and preservation of knowledge in the form of books and other documents. Um, but rather differently, um, I think that we um, have to think of libraries uh, in antiquity as mostly being more modest affairs, um, small collections of books um, in, in bookcases, trunks or armaria, um, uh, book ca- small cases for books. Um, and uh, it's only later in the imperial period that we start to see the flourishing of sort of big public libraries in a way that we might recognize them today. It is, uh, do scholars know, um, and I guess it gets into defining at what point a library is a, is a library. Um, so when, when do you consider um, a library to have formed in the city of Rome? Yeah, so library, let's talk about the definition of the word itself in, in Greek and Latin. The, the Latin word is biblioteca. It comes from the Greek word bibliotheke, which means literally a case for books, something that's set up to hold books. Um, so, uh, so from that perspective, um, a library could be just a book collection or any um, physical structure that might hold a collection of books. So we can expect that in, the, in um, Italy and in Rome, we would have had things that were libraries um, among elite households um, starting in the 4th, 3rd, 2nd centuries BC um, and, and sort of continuing on through. Um, we have a really great testimony in the digest um, uh, of Roman law compiled by Justinian, um, which is Olbian um, quoting a first century CE jurist, Nerva, on the definition of that word biblioteca. And he says that it can be the bookcase itself, a trunk or an armarium. Um, it can be the collection of books that were contained in such a case, or it can be a place, a locus, where um, uh, these cases 
where a case or, or cases were, were housed. Um, so, you know, the library as an institution, a public library, is a sort of separate question, and that um, first starts to appear in Rome um, under, um, uh, under Augustus. Caesar had a plan for one um, before he was assassinated. He had hoped that Marcus Vera would help him set up a public library for the city, um, uh, but that didn't happen um, before 44 BCE. Um, so it was left to Augustus, um, who gave the test to Asinius Pollio. Um, and that's the first um, uh, library as an institution funded um, by the imperial um, household um, for, the, for the city of Rome. But certainly private libraries would have existed um, long before. Interesting. Um, so first century BCE in the city of Rome, that's when it's, it, it is believed that the first public library was established. That's right. That's right. Um, it, it probably in the forties. Okay. What's uh, what's known about that that li- library, and it, does it still exist today um, from from an archaeological per- perspective? Yeah. Good question. Actually, that very first one is um, one that we're a little bit unsure where and um, exactly where it was housed. Um, it was at the um, a, a building called the Atrium Libertatis, um, which the Atrium of Liberty, which was in the Forum of Caesar. Um, so just kind of under the arcs or the citadel in Rome, just north of that along the, uh, the bottom of the slope. Um, uh, that said, that's a part of the city of Rome that's been built and rebuilt many, many times over the centuries. Um, so we don't quite have um, uh, direct archaeological evidence of what that um, library looked at, it looked like in, in that site. Um, better evidence we have for um, the kind of second subsequent library um, uh, that Augustus set up, um, a set of two libraries, um, one for Greek and one for Latin, um, on the Palatine um, in his complex around the temple of the Palatine Apollo, and in fact his own household. Um, attached to that complex was um, this wonderful and and for the time very big um, uh, uh, double porticoed library um, for Greek and Latin, um, uh, the, Pal- the Palatine libraries. Um, in that period too, there's another one over at the Porticus of Octavia near the theater of Marcellus. Um, uh, and that again is one that we aren't exactly sure of its disposition. Um, but the Palatine libraries we can see in the Severan plan. Um, so we actually um, have a, a, a kind of near contemporary map of them. Um, with a plot of these two wonderful big armed porticos that jut out from what we think were those kind of um, uh, storage rooms, um, which are actually sort of the heart of what a biblioteca, what a library um, was conceived to be um, in this time. So those those two libraries on the the Palatine Hill, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so though, so so there's archaeological there's vestiges of those two libraries that still exist yes yes um another one that we know um uh, very well from the city of rome you can visit it today are the opium libraries in the form of trajan um again uh, two um uh 
two bicameral library, um, perhaps also um, designed to hold on one side Greek texts and on one side Latin texts that surround um, Trajan's column um, in, in the forum. So a very prominent position um, for those libraries um, in the imperial fora. How do scholars know about that first library that you cited, the Atrium of Liberty? Um, I presume uh, someone or uh, more than one person wrote, wrote, wrote about it. Um, what are the main, yeah. main sources that scholars lean on to, to, to know that it existed? Yes, yeah, Suetonius writes about the libraries quite frequently um, in his histories um, for each of the different um, uh, emperors um, who were in this period very interested in developing um, a series of uh, imperially funded libraries. By one count, by the 4th century CE, there are something like 28 libraries in the city of Rome. Um, uh, so this is a, you know, a big topic um, with the intersections of lots of literary and as you're um, suggesting archaeological evidence. The literary evidence for the Atrium Libertatis Library so comes from um, uh, our historian Suetonius being one of them. So Suetonius himself, we know from an inscription that survives in North Africa, um, was, uh, was part of the imperial um, uh, uh, staff for um, the imperial libraries um, in, in his Age. So he is listed as being ob bibliotechis and ob pistolis. So he was responsible for um, uh, maintaining the imperial correspondence, epistoli, and also for um, uh, the imperial libraries, the bibliothecae publicae, the public libraries. Um, so Suetonius is a really good source. Um, but for the Atrium Libertatis in particular, um, Pliny the Elder talks about um, uh, the in specifically. Um, the way in which Asinius Pollio was involved. Um, Asinius Pollio was a statesman um, uh, and a man of letters in the time of Augustus, um, who was given the task of sort of setting up this first library for Augustus. Um, but then also one of my very favorite sources is um, the first poem in the third book of Ovid's um, uh, poems from exile, the Tristia, um, where he sends his book back to the city and it tries to go visit its brothers in the um, public libraries that were in the city of Rome at the time. This is around, you know, 10 CE. Um, and it visits the Atrium Libertatis, it visits the Porticus of Octavia, and then it visits the, um, uh, the palette, the the two Palatine libraries um, uh, near the Domus Augustiana. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's one of the great things about that poem that poor Ovid who had been exiled, the, the book finds that its brothers are banned from the libraries and, and it can't enter them too. So it's also this sort of um, interesting um, testimony about um, the libraries as a form of the controlling of, of what's in the libraries as, as a form of censorship, um, uh, more or less in the time of Augustus, which is something we also hear about in testimony um, about the libraries and, and sources like Suetonius and Tacitus, what's in and what's out. When there's enough time on some of these episodes on the show, I'll ask scholars what uh, some of their interests are around certain topics. But I want to actually um, 
ask that question now because I can really feel <laughs> and, and, I, and I, it, because I can really feel your your passion um, coming through and it's it's exciting it's exciting to uh, and and I presume it's gonna be exciting for people listening to you speak about this topic um, your passion for this topic is coming through and I and I uh, I can almost visualize you like in 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 a place like Rome or, or maybe even in in America you know, when it comes to li- libraries and being excited about this, can you can you share more about what your passion is around this around this topic and and what it was like for for you the first time you visited uh, Rome uh, to to really research this topic? Yeah, that's a great question and so generous of you, Andrew. Um, I'm a person who really loves loves books and always has and that is you know one of the things that drew me to classical literature in the first place um and uh in my research i've really been connecting um the history of uh, learning and scholarship in antiquity with these traditions that go up um uh, into our own time so um uh, i'm i'm really um driven by thinking about um, how this the material remains of um, of book culture in antiquity, the circulation of books, the, the rise of uh, a book trade and publishing, um, quote unquote, in certain ways in antiquity, um, allowed for the creation of uh, Greco-Roman classics um, uh, that we have received down to our own day. It's no accident. Um, the the folks that I'm I'm really interested in thinking about Ovid and Cicero and everyone in between were really making an effort to create a canon of classics that attached uh, the Latin classics to the Greek canon that they had received from uh, the Alexandrian tradition. Um, you know, the, the evidence of that, um, uh, the Greek and Latin wings of this wonderful Palatine Library of Augustus, to me is so, so emblematic of the creation of a Greco-Roman classics. So yeah, it really always gives me goosebumps thinking about what um, a continuous tradition it is um, uh, to kind of move from antiquity um, to our own day through um, books, their circulation, their copying, repetition, um, reading and rereading. And I also think it really gives us an opportunity to kind of contextualize where these things came from and um, will help us think about where classics is going as a field, um, which is something we're all really engaged with doing um, right now to to kind of think about its origins in, in this this period of the first century BC and CE. Was there a, a library, a, a moment that you had? Is there is there a moment that stands out for you when you en- entered a library in the, the Mediterranean basin? And of course, it could be on the Italian peninsula. Is there is there one that, that stands out that you want to share? Sure. I mean, I'll talk about the Villa dei Papiri, which is possibly the most famous library um, uh, to this day um, from, anti- from uh, 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 ancient ancient Italy, um, uh, it is um, a private library, so a library that existed in a suburban villa in the city of Herculaneum. Um, and I went to Herculaneum with a wonderful project um, working on um, documenting the ancient graffiti 
in the city um, that's run by Rebecca Benefield at, at Washington and Lee. Um, so I had the opportunity to work with them documenting this other kind of written culture, um, graffiti um, uh, of regular everyday people um, left in Herculaneum in 79 CE, um, uh, you know, right before the eruption of Vesuvius and the destruction, but also preservation of the city. Um, and it turns out that there's, you know, one of the um, most uh, elaborate villa uh, remains that we have is this villa, um, so-called Villa David Peary, which may have been owned by the father-in-law of Julius Caesar, Lucius Calpurnius Piso Caesonius. Um, uh, in the first century BCE. Um, and it's known especially for its sculpture collection, um, bronzes um, uh, in particular that are preserved in greater numbers there and greater quality there than almost anywhere else um, uh, in, from ancient Italy. Um, but along with the sculpture collection, um, this rich, elite, very learned um, collector was collecting not only sculpture, but also books. Um, and so off of uh, the um, sort of main entryway of the house in a little storage room um, uh, that's only about four meters by four meters square, um, you know, that was where um, thousands of fragments of papyrus scrolls um, were preserved and, and started to be discovered in the 18th century, still being studied today. Um, this is the only library that we have um, intact uh, from the ancient world, from, from anywhere in Greece and Rome. Um, or anywhere else in the Mediterranean where we have books sort of on the shelves as they were left um, to us by, um, uh, by the people of their own time. Um, and uh, as many of your listeners probably know, it's been sort of surprising what is there and what isn't there amongst those collections. So we don't have Homer and we don't have Virgil um, and we don't have what we think of as the classic classics. What we do have is um, a huge collection of texts by an Epicurean philosopher, Philodemus, um, uh, who was active in Rome sort of at this time. Um, uh, many of these texts seem to have Philodemus' own handwriting on them, so it may have been something like his personal collection that got attached to this household in some way. We're not sure about the mechanics. Um, but it's, it's very, um, to my mind, very typical of what we see from what we have in direct evidence from ancient libraries, that is, um, either um, uh, this example or in book lists, some book lists we have in papyri, um, and some epigraphic book lists that we have that seem to have been posted um, outside libraries, um, uh, small libraries, maybe attached to schools or gymnasia um, around the Mediterranean, um, mostly all, all Greek, um, these. Um, but where, where the collections of these libraries seem to have been really idiosyncratic, 
um, focused in one area or another um, and not really comprehensive um, in the way that we think of the Library of Alexandria project or even sort of our own kind of Library of Congress project or even a university library. Um, most libraries, most book collections in antiquity, perhaps like um, our own book collections at home, um, would have been really focused on, on one um, topic or another, one genre or another, perhaps one author or another, um, based on the interests of the collectors and the needs um, of the users. That uh, library that you mentioned at the at the start there um, was that is that in the the Bay of Naples? Exactly. Yeah. So Herculaneum is down below Pompeii. Um, Pompeii is sort of on the um, almost on the slopes of Vesuvius. So Pompeii got hit by um, uh, uh, lots of um, uh, volcanic material and then lava flows. Um, Herculaneum was differently affected by the eruption, and it was mostly hit by um, pyroclastic flows, um, so flows of very hot air that that carbonized um, uh, uh, all of the um, organic materials. So we have wood preserved at, at Herculaneum in different ways than we do at Pompeii. We have bread, um, loaves of bread and fruit um, that were just sort of charred in place and um, the same mechanics um, uh, preserved these papyrus scrolls as kind of carbon, carbonized um, uh, uh, lumps um, that scholars in uh, the Biblioteca Nazionale at Naples have been working for hundreds of years to decipher, um, uh, to unroll um, very carefully and to decipher its wonderful work. Um, but yeah, Herculaneum used to be on the Bay of Naples. It used to be a coastal town. Now it's slightly in, inland because of that eruption of Vesuvius. Um, after the pyroclastic flows um, came the, 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 the lava and other volcanic materials um, and, uh, and caused uh, the shoreline to change there, um, in fact. So it used to be on the coast um, and now it's slightly inland in the Bay of Naples. Yeah, very, very interesting, very interesting coincidence. I, I love it. Um, okay, so um, so the books themselves in some of these initial libraries, um, can you can you describe and I'm using the term term book book. Um, so so I say that in a very broad sense, obviously, can you share what kind of objects would have been stored in some of these initial libraries that we're speaking about in the city of Rome? Yeah, great question. Um, again, we're inferring some of this um, uh, 
but there are some uh, uh, sources that mention the inclusion of other kinds of materials in, in ancient libraries, um, including art and artifacts. We can talk a little bit about that in a minute. But really, um, uh, what we should be thinking about when we think of bibliothecae is um, uh, papyrus book rolls, um, and that almost by definition, a biblioteca, a library, is a place where you store books, and books um, for um, ancient people through the, the rise of the codex um, uh, uh, were um, uh, papyrus scrolls um, that would be anywhere from, you know, three or four feet to 20 feet long that could be about the size, usually about the, the um, height of a modern book and in that range. So um, uh, just a few inches to something more of a, of, um, a big folio size that, that we might imagine. So um, more than a foot um, for really expensive and fancy scrolls, but, but um, uh, in that range. So a, a scroll that you could, that you could handle, that you could um, unroll um, uh, if you're reading in Latin or Greek from left to right um, and read um, uh, text uh, organized in columns sort of marching along the scroll as they are sometimes described. This uh, estimation has been provided on the, on the show, but I think it's worthwhile covering it as well in this episode, especially given the, uh, the subject matter that we're speaking about today. Can you estimate for everyone listening um, what, uh, how many pages in modern terms would probably uh, be uh, associated to a to a scroll. So, so if someone had a scroll, how many how many pages in modern modern terms would uh, that be in a book? It's a great question. It's really easy to determine too. So I'm just um, pulling off of my shelf um, this volume of Ovid's Tristia, ready at hand. Um, and the first book, right, our books um, that get transmitted to us as, um, uh, you know, book one of this or that text correspond to the size of a, of a volumen of a scroll um, in antiquity. So in my Oxford classical texts, um, Ovid's, uh, the first book of Ovid's Tristia is, I would say, about uh, 20 pages. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I think if I recall, the reference before was around. I think the mention before was uh, was like a chap, like a chapter, like a typical chapter for for a scroll, right. give or take. Exactly, that's right. But we can think of it, you know, through um, all of our ancient texts um, uh, are are organized in books, and those books, um, in general, correspond to a to a volumen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in, in, what's known about the, the people that could access these libraries in the early years in the city of Rome? Yeah, uh, when we think about public libraries and what it means to, to make public um, a biblioteca um, in Rome in this the early years of, uh, of the Principate and the Empire, um, we shouldn't be thinking of public library in our traditional sense. 
<laughs> um, it's not the case that um, any Joe Schmo um, could could come off the street um, and handle books. Um, the folks we know who used the libraries regularly um, uh, were obviously our elite um, uh, readers, um, uh, senatorial class, um, uh, the equites, the, the, the higher classes of realm. And there are no um, uh, strict um, uh, guidelines that we have written about who was allowed in and who wasn't. Um, but the evidence that we have suggests that it was that these were like other um, cultural institutions in Rome and that were divided um, quite a lot um, based on on class and um, uh, in terms of access. Um, what it means to have a public library then, a biblioteca publica, is that the library is um, being created for the city, right, for um, the populace, um, uh, and that it is being maintained um, often even by a private um, uh, uh, donor, whether that be the emperor as his sort of private persona um, or um, private donors in um, in. Uh, in municipal settings elsewhere um, in local contexts um, throughout Italy and the Roman world, um, that they're doing it sort of for the sake of others. Um, uh, uh, so, for example, the Plinies, the family of Pliny um, the Elder, Pliny the Younger, um, were, were from Como, um, and, um, uh, and they, um, they endowed a library for the city of, of Como. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, for which we have some um, epigraphic evidence. So um, we know that um, at various places, there's a wonderful library of um, Celsus at Ephesus, of which the um, facade still um, survives. Um, I've never seen that in person, Andrew. Perhaps you have, but um, and that's one of uh, the places I very much like to visit. Um, we do know that private donors endowed what might be considered public libraries um, in sites um, around the Roman and Greek worlds. Hmm. Uh, Professor Richard Alston has been on the show a number of a number of times, and the last episode, uh, Richard Alston of um, uh, Royal Holloway, uh, University of London. And the last episode we did was on uh, the early years of Julius Caesar. And he spoke in uh, reasonable detail, um, given the, that all the episodes are under 60 minutes. Um, Professor Alston spoke in detail about um, Julius Caesar um, being, being a writer. What, what's, known about, yeah, what's known about Augustus, um, Octavian Augustus, in terms of uh, his writings? Is, is he known to have, have written? And um, what do you think his interests uh, were in uh, establishing these libraries? Yeah, he wasn't a writer in the way that Caesar was, um, certainly. Um, uh, obviously, Caesar's commentaries are um, hugely important documentation of his um, uh, of, of his activities um, and, and such interesting artifacts of, um, of that very interesting, uh, uh, important time in Rome. Augustus, we know, was much more of a reader. 
um, in fact. And so in, in Suetonius's um, uh, Life of Horace, we know um, that Augustus was a reader of Horace and corresponded with Horace. Um, uh, and others, obviously, there are the stories of Augustus um, hearing the performances of, uh, of early books of, of Virgil's Aeneid. Um, so his interest in um, libraries is really, I think, kind of drawing on um, that plan that Julius Caesar had had to set up a library um, for Rome, um, uh, a, a library for of Greek and Latin, creating this bilingual canon. Um, so Augustus is really inheriting that as a project um, in the creation of his public libraries. And then also um, was, of course, uh, through Mycenaeus and others, a great patron of, um, of writers in this time. Um, uh, for um, to cultivate the the, um, uh, the cultural capital um, that he saw going hand in hand with the political capital um, of Rome uh, in this period of its ascendancy, and it was you know it's very success. It was in the end very successful. Um, we end up we do end up in this time with the beginnings of a real canon of Latin literature. Um, that continues um, uh, throughout um, uh, late antiquity into the Middle Ages and obviously um, comes down to us today. Um, one thing to kind of get back to that I think I left hanging a little bit was um, the question of what else is in libraries. Yeah, um, so they're associated always with art and artifacts. Um, in a very interesting way. So um, we have to remember in antiquity, books were still relatively expensive, um, maybe not as precious as parchment books would end up being um, in the Middle Ages because papyrus was not quite as dear a material as animal skin, but papyrus was imported. Um, uh, so it was a material that had some value. Mm the much more valuable thing of a scroll was the labor that went into it. So that um, the, a slave um, or a scribe um, would have had to copy out any text um, that existed. So it, it is a very labor intensive um, uh, product. So, um, you know, I started by talking about storage and enclosure as being one of those things that are, are characteristic of how um, ancient Romans think about libraries. Um, a library as a storage closet or room that might have a wonderful portico attached to it where you could take the book out and read it. But you're always going to put the book back in um, and close it up and keep it safe. Um, so they're from the very beginning associated with other kinds of um, uh, expensive cultural objects, art and artifacts. Um, thinking about that first library um, uh, that um, Asinius Pollio set up, um, we hear about um, the fact from Pliny the Elder that in that library there there were portraits, imagines, of authors, um, and that Marcus Barrow was the only living author who was given a portrait in the library. So um, uh, we also hear about Cicero when in his communication with Atticus, he's always writing back and forth to Atticus about, send me books, um, send me art, um, in particular, um, 
uh, when Cicero um, had a whole um, array of suburban villas um, uh, throughout uh, the Italian peninsula, um, he was asking Atticus to send him bronzes from Greece um, that he could put in his private libraries there. His favorite was um, a Hermathena, so a statue of Hermes and Athena, um, which he thought was you know, particularly appropriate um, for uh, the cultivation of wisdom, um, these these two gods um, uh, in his libraries. Um, but then also Tacitus tells us about a tripod um, from the temple of Apollo in Thebes, so a Greek artifact um, that had been brought to um, uh, to Italy and was put in the um, uh, in the Palatine libraries. Um, uh, Right, which were also part of the Temple of Apollo complex um, in Rome. So these artifacts, um, many of them taken um, uh, over from the Greek world, really do populate, uh, start to populate um, Roman libraries. And you know, the books themselves um, uh, are often uh, taken from from the Greek world as well. So. Um, that's that's one thing to remember about um, the earliest foundations of especially the Roman public libraries is that they were um, they were developed um, around uh, the spoils of Rome's um, uh, Rome's conquests uh, in other parts of the Mediterranean um, sometimes directly so books collections of books would be um, taken over wholesale to the Italian peninsula we hear about Aristotle Aristotle's books having been um, brought back by Sulla um, uh, after the sack of Athens in 86 BCE, so a really important moment um, in Rome's uh, history of libraries. Um, but then also the libraries themselves would have been uh, largely funded um, by uh, the, uh, um, the spoils of war. So very connected to Rome's um, uh, uh, political military um, uh, expansion in this period too. Okay. When it comes to contemporaries in Rome, like Cicero, for instance, so he was he was writing. I think you mentioned a personal li library in in these in these more public libraries. Would uh, would someone like Cicero write? Would he would he keep a would he have what he wrote copied in some cases and put into a library so it's accessible to more people or is it a case where in the with writers from from Rome the city of Rome uh, their works entered into libraries after their life was over yeah, both. Um, that's a great question, the kind of mechanisms for getting things into the library um, uh, and getting things out, right? So I, initially I thought the question was going to be, um, how did Cicero get books, get copies of books that were in the library? And so one mechanism that we read about um, uh, uh, in that direction is that authors um, and readers would have their slaves or scribes um, go into the library and copy books out, would effectively borrow a book from the library, um, have it copied, um, and then and then deposit it back. Um, the mechanism for getting books into the library um, uh, is pretty interesting. I mentioned um, Ovid. Um, uh, 
saying that his books had been excluded um, in Suetonius's life of Augustus. We know that Augustus, um, getting back to thinking about Julius Caesar as an author, we know that Augustus said, um, you can't include Julius Caesar's early writings, his juvenilia in the libraries. He removed those. Um, uh, there, there's some interesting tem uh, testimony, um, one that I really like, a first century CE, um, Dr. Scribonius Largus, um, uh, who writes um, a medical treatise um, of, uh, of prescriptions, um, um, concoctions for, for fixing one pain or another. And he writes about another doctor in the city of Rome who, um, who never shared his prescriptions. Um, with anyone while he was alive, but after he was after his death, he gave it to the emperor Tiberius, and Tiberius put it into the library, and thus Scribonius says um, it came into our hands. That is, when you died, you might um, bequeath your books um, to an emperor um, so that they could come into the public library and thus come into common knowledge. Um, Another great example, I think, is, is Horace in the first of his odes, where he writes of wanting um, to be, wanting Mycenaeus to insert him um, among the lyric poets. Um, May in Ceres, he says, please insert me. Um, and this is probably this word in Serere is probably a word that Horace is using to, to um, as a gloss for to deposit in the library, to put his books um, in those new um, libraries um, uh, on the Palatine. Okay. Uh, closing question, Stephanie. And I and I actually, I actually had wrote down uh, checkout on my on my note notes here, but you 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 covered that in your <laughs> in that last res response. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can't miss one of those pro proverbial items, right? When you're talking about libraries. Um, all right. So closing question: um, did did they did they evolve in a material way based on your research over the over the next uh, couple or few hundred years? You can tackle it however you want. Um, but uh, the, the, the libraries in, in Rome, did they, did they evolve? Did they proliferate in numbers? Did they, did they, did they change in size? Did they change in their, in their, in their practices around op operations? How, how did they evolve? Yeah, certainly proliferation, I think, Andrew, is the right word. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, um, when we're talking about Ovid at the turn of the first millennium, um, he is, uh, he, there are three public libraries um, uh, in the city of Rome. By um, uh, four centuries later, we know that there are something uh, on the order of, of, of 30, 28 by a certain count. Um, and that's just public libraries. That doesn't, of course, include everybody's um, uh, private collections, some of which were really significant, um, including Cicero's. Um, so proliferation of the number of libraries, but also proliferation of the number of books. Um, this is a period where there's a real booming um, of, of book material and literary knowledge. And it's, that's one of the things that excites me so much about studying, um, studying this time is that there's a real rise in book culture and as a book lover it's um, been a really fun period for me to for me to study you are delightful to speak with stephanie thank you for coming on the show today of course thank you andrew so much for having me it's been fun so again everybody the book that i mentioned at the start of the episode that dr frampton wrote 
Empire of Letters, Writing in Roman Literature and Thought from Lucretius to Ovid. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Stephanie and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.